0: SW Media. So, Renato, what is with all the filings and delays in the Mar-a-Lago case?
1: It's complicated.
2: I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor. A practicing lawyer and a legal analyst.
0: And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News.
1: I'm Brian Greer. I'm a former attorney in the CIA Office of General Counsel, who specialized in CISA. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite
2: or a tweet.
0: So, Brian... I think that of all our episodes, this the what we're going to cover in this one definitely cannot be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. And we asked you to come on to help us break down the Mar-a-Lago case because this isn't just your run-of-the-mill case. It involves classified information, and therefore uh, the Classified Information Procedure Act applies which kind of mucks things up I guess in the way that discovery proceeds and I'm hoping that you can walk us through what the hell is going on
1: Yeah happy to thanks for having me back and I guess we should say we're recording this on Tuesday every time we've recorded in the past there's been huge breaking news in between in these cases that's rendered it moot but I think this will hold so uh yeah so we had a, some big developments last week with what everyone cares about the most, I think, in the Florida case, which is when is it going to go to trial? And we've known all along, I know you guys have talked about that, it is uh, the classified information makes it a complicated case. And going to trial in May was going to be a little aggressive, although I think feasible, but, but a little aggressive. So we finally found out where Cannon, I think, is leaning, which is she did not formally delay the trial date yet. She said, we'll revisit that in March. But for reasons we can go ahead and talk about She's basically delayed everything two to three months, primarily because of discovery and issues related to the Classified Information Procedures Act, and there's just not enough time once we revisit the schedule in March to get everything done between now and then.
2: So maybe we take her. Let's take her at face value for a second, which is always a sketchy thing to do with Judge Gannon or <laughs> questionable thing to do. Let's just take everything she says at face value. Assume what she's saying is true. What are her stated? concerns uh, or about the discovery process.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what and I was thinking, like, what's the most what's Trump's best argument? Yeah. Like, you know, the, the same thing, which is discovery um, has been at least according to Trump and Cannon, seem to buy it moving slower than expected. I think we should talk about Renato. Let's put a pin in that come back to that. Because compared to a normal criminal case, this is actually moving at like lightning speed. But, but they made that case to Cannon that things are not moving as quickly as, with discovery as they thought. And she seemed to buy it, probably because of her inexperience with criminal cases and her bias. Um, but the, the best argument they had was there were at least five charged documents that at least in, as of October, Trump's def- cleared defense counsel still hadn't had access to because of issues with clearances in which skiffs they could be stored in. And stuff like that, and so because they were so incredibly sensitive, due to that extra sensitivity, Trump's defense counsel hadn't even seen them yet. So that's sort of their best unfairness argument on the discovery.
2: Well, let's talk about what a charge document is. That's very important, and that's different, right? You get millions of pages of documents in a case, but in a in a case like this one, a charge document means something uh, particular, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the core evidence being used against them. You know, this is as they were dealing drugs. This is the drugs. Right. <laughs> and at least there was a, a five of the of the however many documents, you know, they hadn't had access to. So they're slightly sympathetic that there might need to be somewhat of a delay be, because of that. Not a two or three month delay, but still a little bit of a delay. Trump's other argument was, when you move into sepa Section 4, that's when the government comes in and says, there are some records here that technically meet the standards of discovery, technically, but they are highly classified. And we want to apply protective measures to them to only give Trump what's relevant and helpful to his defense. And then we want to withhold all the other sensitive but not really helpful details. And so that happens in every sepa case. DOJ would move, file a motion Explain all that to the court, say we're going to redact this, we're going to do a summary for this, and that would all be done ex parte. Trump has said, well, one, I want to participate in that. I think that will, it's essentially been rejected by Cannon, but close. But two, I at least want to be able to explain my defense theories to Judge Cannon at that point, which does happen in SEPA cases because Judge Cannon is going to be looking at these DOJ filings, only hearing argument from them. At minimum, it's fair to say, she should understand what the defense's theories are, what their defenses are before she rules on that motion, and so Trump's argument was, "I need to see all the discoveries basically discovery needs to be done until i until I can make that proffer to you, Judge Cannon, and then you can rule on the section four so they were basically saying, "We want to move section four to the end of discovery, which is not how it works at all <laughs> and so it doesn't look like Cannon bought that argument, but I think she was sympathetic that at least Let's give him a little more time. Well, two to three months more time to look through all that stuff.
0: Just to clarify, Section 4 is the government's motion on what to release and what to withhold. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, in discovery to the defense counsel. So, like all the classified documents that are, Trump is charged with, he's going to get all those with no redactions at all. And probably all the documents that Mar a Lago, he'll get with no redactions at all. It's things like if there was a damage assessment, hypothetically, that was done in this case after the compromise, there might be super sensitive details on that, that they don't even want Trump and his lawyer to know. And they're not really relevant in the case. They could be an inculpatory. It could be a foreign government saying, we had to pull a source from the field and now he's under protection because we're so concerned about this. Technically discoverable, not relevant and helpful to the fence. So that would be something that the government would withhold entirely. So that's sort of what goes on in Section 4. With Trump, though, this is all going to be on the periphery. Like, the core stuff he's charged with, he's going to get in full.
0: When you say he, do you mean him? Like, he's going to, as a defendant, will be able to look at what, there are 31 documents, including several top secret documents. So he's going to get those to be able to review, not just his lawyers. Because, I mean, this is... He's kind of blabby. I mean, I know that he probably already has it in his head and everything, but that seems shocking to me.
1: Yeah. So, if this were a normal SEPA case involving, you know, terrorism charges or export control violations, the defendant would not get access to any of this stuff. But it's an Espionage Act case where that classified information is core relevance to the case, as Renato said. He's being charged with it. So, he has to be able to see the evidence being used against him. And he had access to that information while president of the United States. So, even a low-level espionage act case against a government GS-13, if they had access to documents when they were in government, DOJ would turn them over with, with no redactions typically.
2: So I'll just say, I'm going to have a couple provocative <laughs> opinions. I, I think this whole process is very heavily weighted to the government and it's not fair yeah. to defendants. I, I think that it's very, very um, light on due process for the defendant. I mean, at this stage of things, Most defense counsel don't have a fully formed theory of what their defense is going to be. They need to really look at all the documents to figure out what their best defenses are going to be. And of course, the defendant, regardless, should participate in their own defense. They're usually the ones who are best able to aid a defense counsel in doing that. They know the facts better. They understand what's going on in the case better. So from my perspective, this is a very pro-government process and that's why the Justice Department has to be pretty careful here because they really need to, they may be screwing this up for future cases. I think Cannon is looking at this from the perspective of someone who hasn't dealt with this process before. And, to some, and I will, I'm going to confess, I'm somebody who looks at it more from that perspective. It's like, I'm a guy who tries a lot of criminal cases all the time, has a lot of criminal trials and uh, criminal uh, matters right now. And, uh, you know, to me, this is like, wow, this is really restrictive. And so they could potentially get some pretty bad rulings from her, set some bad precedent, at least in that circuit.
1: That's a great way to look at things. I would encourage everyone to look at this case through that lens sometimes, which is pick any defendant you would be sympathetic to. Some people are sympathetic to reality winner. I'm not. But, you know, (laughs) pick someone else. Uh, what process would you want them to have? So there have been some aspects of this that I think are not totally unfair. Trump's lawyers are certainly making the arguments Renato you would make if you were their lawyer, you know defense lawyer sometime like that They're not delay in due process are not unusual arguments for any defense lawyer to make
0: though I have to push back here if he's getting the actual documents and he's able to see them. It seems to me that for the elements of this crime, that should be enough for him to mount a defense. I mean, the the main defense would be this isn't national defense information that would be damaging to national security or something like that. Um, I'm not really sure. I guess the damage assessment would go to that. Is that what you're suggesting that, oh, there was no, you know, we looked at, we did a damage assessment and there was no damage and therefore this case is baseless. Is that kind of where that would go? Like, why would that be relevant beyond being able to see the actual documents that he's being charged with.
1: Yeah, that's a good second point I wanted to raise, which is while the process seems definitely pro-government tilted, and I get that, with Trump, it's it's less pro-government tilted than any other probably CIPA case we've ever had, where, again, they're, give, they're giving him all the charged documents and probably all the documents that were Mar-a-Lago that were classified. They're just turning them over. So he's going to have unfettered access to that and with him they are probably still going to very lightly apply CIPA section 4 for, for the I don't want to call it extraneous it could be exculpatory but for the other class records that are technically discoverable he they are I think it looks like they're going to lightly apply those tools to maybe redact identified information about a source or information about a foreign government which plays very heavily in these cases stuff like that but n- probably not anything of core relevance here. There might be other cases where that's more aggressive, but here DOJ is going to be less aggressive than probably any case they've ever brought.
2: I think the reason I'm reacting the way that I am, Asha is that essentially what this process is suggesting is the defense is not even going to be able to take part in a process in which there's a determination of whether they get discovery. And you're basically relying on the judge to be a stand in for the defense. And with some judges, that might be okay. With other judges, it might not. I mean, could you imagine, let's just say that it was roles reversed and Judge Chutkin was the one supposedly looking out for Trump's interests. Like, I could understand why, because she's been skeptical of his arguments, why the team would be very concerned about how vigilant she'd be at looking out for his interests.
0: Yeah, but I do think there are limits to the criminal lens in this regard, right? Because this is about national security. This is weighing, it's not just weighing the government's interest in putting the guy in jail, that which is what the a criminal case, that's the government's interest, right? Like, we think this guy's guilty, we want to put him in jail, and therefore you're going to ensure that, um, you know, there's as much leeway as possible for the defendant. But and in, in when you're weighing that against national security and this happens in a lot of contexts this is why we have sepa to begin with is that there's an understanding that national security interests um are you know have have ramifications have impli- implications beyond the discrete case um and i don't know like i'm not i'm not sure that i think the the very fact that we have a legislatively mandated process I think it's you know we're not just saying that the government's word is always taken for it. There is a neutral arbitrator in there, not not so neutral in this case, but whatever.
1: And the judge will have to read all the declarations from DOJ and the intelligence community. Um, they don't always do this, but some judges in canon, I think, will will go through actually the documents one by one and look at the redactions and look at the substitutions and stuff like that. She'll do that. Judges are maybe fifty fifty on whether that they do that. Um, and the last thing, and maybe you could elaborate, Renato is. Prosecutors have this power all the time to just not turn over something in discovery, right? like what is discoverable now they still have ethics in the Constitution and all that, but they have a ton of discretion in what's turnover in discovery initially, and so while with section four it's things that are technically discoverable they've they've gotten past that they're they're still getting a lot of times I've seen like it's stuff that's on the board. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying.
2: I mean, I think, think just, uh, first of all, I think for everybody listening to this, you're getting a really valuable discussion here because you're getting a, val- a discussion from a number of different lens, right? I'm, I'm discussing this as somebody who is a federal prosecutor for a long time and is a criminal defense attorney. Asha's coming at this from a national security perspective. Brian, you in many ways bridge that. And you're coming at it from somebody who was um, you know, d- involved in national security law. For the you know for the government for quite some time, but I think that I, I guess my reaction is as follows: the government has a lot of power in criminal cases. When they choose to exercise that power, when the prosecutors choose to exercise that power with discretion and in an appropriate way, the process works very very well in the United States of America. And there are a lot of components of the DOJ where, yes, prosecutors have a lot of discretion about what they turn over, but they, as you suggested, they turn over most everything. I mean, I, when I was a federal prosecutor, I would turn over almost everything in my file. I mean, it, it would take a lot for me to hold something back because I'm not interested in like having any argument that there's anything unfair, that I held anything back, or that there's something exculpatory. I just wanted to turn it all over. That is not the process in every U.S. attorney's office in this country. And I've learned this hard the hard way, going across the country defending cases. And there are places in this country where they'll say, "You know what? Oh, you want to know what your our witnesses against you are going to say? Uh, wait till they hit the witness stand. Then you'll get their FBI reports, and you're going to have to decide on the on the fly how you're going to cross examine them, things like that." And I think if you have a, somebody taking an approach that they're they want to withhold as much as possible. Um, I would be, if I was a defense counsel in a case like this, I would be very concerned about not even having a role, a part to play in that process. I would be very concerned on behalf of my client, but I agree with Asha. There are countervailing concerns and there are also other types of practices in these cases where they'll, you don't even get to see the witness and all sorts of stuff. I mean, I've been there at these trials and it's just, yeah, it's kind of crazy.
0: So Brian, Let's unpack this because you made a super helpful chart. You know, I'm a fan of charts. Um, And you, it's a chart that lists out the pretrial schedule, the various uh, motions and reports, disclosures that that need to happen and the deadline uh, for them. And you also made A reference, you know, you updated it with old, kind of the difference between what is currently the deadline now for these various things and the old deadlines. And then you address what you think of the delays in some of these cases where the deadlines were pushed back. And I just thought we could, I feel like that since all the updates in this case moving forward for a while is just going to be this procedural stuff we might as well know what we're talking about and what your assessment is.
1: Yeah, well, first off, I should say, uh, thank you for the inspiration on making charts. I've always been inspired by yours, but I'm not very artistic, so I just had to make mine all in Microsoft Word. There's no drawings or lines or anything like that.
0: Okay, I can draw stick figures for them if you want. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, yeah, we should add that in there.
0: I'm, I'm very excited about the prospect of making a Judge Cannon stick figure. Um,
1: it's complicated, good good topic for the show, um, even for me to look at and understand what she's doing because I think that I agree with Ronaldo. That was a great discussion looking at both sides of, of how we got here. And I think a reasonable person could agree that there should be some delay uh, to this, these pretrial proceedings because of where discovery stands. I think the question though is how much and, and how she got there. And before we get that, I just want to add one more element here, which is a complicating factor here is the fact that, DOJ wanted to withhold all the classified records from Nauta and Dio Lavera, except the one that Nauta photographed, um, because their, their, DOJ's view is they're not charged under the Espionage Act. Their knowledge of the contents of those documents is not relevant. Mm-hmm. Whether it's national inf- defense information is not relevant. They're really, the only intent that they have is, it goes to obstruction Were they working with Trump to basically obstruct the subpoena in the the DOJ investigation? And so their knowledge of the contents of the documents is not relevant. DOJ is not going to argue that they saw them other than the picture. So we should be able to withhold them all. So that's a reasonable argument. And that's what would normally happen just through this. The protective order would say um, DOJ can withhold them from their defense counsel. But if the defense counsel wants to make a case for individual documents to be shown to them, that they can do that. And if DOJ disagrees, they can go to the court. So that's how it normally works. Cannon said, nope, rejecting that. I don't think this, the text of SIPA supports that. And instead, DOJ is going to have to move under Section 4 to withhold them all. And so that part of the big delay here is is that process, which is she's now going to have an adversarial SIPA Section 4 proceeding about withholding those documents that could really end up throwing this this case off altogether. So that's just an important preface to understand these kind of nutty things that that we'll talk about that. So, so that she's homework. asking
0: the government to justify why they are withholding all of these documents for Nada and De Oliveira.
1: Yeah. And and that's a delay right there because DOJ was probably just going to file declarations ex- talking about that sort of extraneous discovery, right? Mm. And now they've got to file a declaration on every single document. It, at least the charge documents, and they're going to probably have to sit there and think about, uh, you know, even the uncharged documents that were on Mar-a-Lago, file declarations, addressing all of them. You know, you may not necessarily go through them one by one, but it's still going to require very detailed declarations. There's probably, I think, according to indictment, seven or eight agencies' information in there. And so that's why, the, you know, let's just start talking about the motions that were delayed. That SEPA Section 4 motion was supposed to be October 10th. And now it's not going to be till December 4th. So that right there is a 56-day delay, almost a two-month delay, just to start the SEPA process.
0: And what do you think um, of that? I mean, is it, is, that sounds like she kind of reversed the burden. In other words, if on the face, as you said, Nada and Delivera aren't being charged with what's the content of these documents, um. She's basically switched it from them justifying why they would need these particular documents to the government having to justify why they're withholding them. Is that like, does she just not get the nature of the charges or do you think this is deliberate or what?
1: I think it's a fair point. And I mean, to put on Renato's defense argument hat, like it's not crazy to say the government should bear the burden of withholding them, not not the defense counsel. Um, but I would say on the flip side, that's not how any CPA case works <laughs> in this regard. There's never been, and that's not really how the statute was set up to work. She didn't think the CIPA section three justified this, but she went up and made up a new remedy under CIPA section four as well to, to sort of remedy this. So it's just, you know, but shifting the burden again, if you're pro defense, n- not crazy how she did it. And she sort of said, well, the text doesn't support what DOJ is doing, but the text doesn't support what she's doing either. <laughs> yeah. So
2: I mean, I think it's safe to say, Judge Kahn is not super sophisticated in terms of her understanding of criminal law and criminal procedure. She was an AUSA, a federal prosecutor, for a very short period of time, tried some small cases. And I think she's just approaching this as like kind of a neophyte to the criminal justice process. You know, asking some of the questions I am in a maybe even less sophisticated way, like, why isn't the defense involved or whatever? And so I think there's a lot of education going on. But of course, she's also approaching it from a perspective that is very um, uh, inclined to uh, support Donald Trump.
0: I mean, I'm sorry, but she's also has a tendency to just make stuff up. I mean, you know what I mean? Like she made up her equitable jurisdiction to entertain Trump's civil case. Sure. She made up a um, special master to review executive privilege. I mean, these are things that does, have never happened in the context that she did them. Um, so True. she's already kind of, uh, you know, as I call her, Judge Luce Cannon, she kind of thinks she's a law unto herself. And I'm not. I guess I'm not surprised that she's chosen to interpret things in her own way. Um, okay, so let's keep going. Um.
1: So, Section Four Motion, DOJ is filing that December fourth now, which again is about a two month delay. Normally, DOJ files the motion. The judge hears it if she wants. If the judge wants to have a hearing at all, happens pretty soon thereafter because there's it's ex parte. There's no nothing left to brief or anything like that, and that that could be done in the next week. You know, if she wanted, but because she wants this adversarial proceeding now with, at least with Nauta and Diola Oliveira about whether they get access, she's allowing them to file basically an opposition to that, which is going to be all the same legal arguments we already saw before about what Section 3 means and, and can defense get access to it or not. And, but she's, that still could be done in like two weeks, but she's giving them until January 23rd, another 51 days to file basically what's their opposition to the Section 4 motion. I know there's the holidays there and stuff, but that's, that's crazy, that is crazy yeah. to have, give them 51 so, days. There's not going to be anything they can review or anything. It's just going to be them making the same legal arguments that we should get access to that stuff. They're not going to get to see DOJ's declaration. So yeah. waiting that long doesn't make any sense. And then she's still not having a hearing again. She could read their brief, have a hearing the next week. She delayed the hearing on this till February 15th. Um, which is another what 23 days later after the opposition is due and even then she doesn't have to rule. So from the beginning of DOJ's section 4 motion, again normally ex parte done quick to the hearing is 74 days. There's just no just And just to emphasize
0: whatsoever. what you're saying, she has created an adversarial <laughs> process and added, you know, this adversarial hearing to something that is normally done between the judge and the government
1: right within a couple of weeks i I think i think yes although we don't know how adversarial yet for for Nauda and deal i think at minimum they're going to get to make legal arguments as to why they should have access but they're not going to get to see any of the classified uh, documents with trump we don't know she seems to have Mm -hmm. sort of rejected his argument that he should be able to participate in the section four where they're just withholding discovery um but we'll see she's going to let him challenge it she's going to hear it She's going to let him challenge the ex parte nature of it, but she's kind of hinted that she's not necessarily going to rule in his favor on that.
2: I I will just say, I feel like this is where she's starting to tip her hand a little bit. In other words, I think having, allowing them to make their arguments, I actually think of, you could imagine our hypothetical prudent judge in this case. Wise prudent judge is like, you know what, this very high profile case, there's going to be a lot of attention here let's let everyone make their arguments. You have 14 days to make your arguments. We're having a hearing in the next week thereafter. That really wouldn't bother me all yeah. that much because it's understandable. Judge, can be like, okay, let's just hear this stuff out. You know, most of the country never heard of this SIPA <laughs> thing before. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of yeah. weird, unusual for a criminal case. So let's make sure everyone is feels comfortable about the procedure and that everyone's arguments are heard. I, I, I But that wouldn't slow things down much. But th- this is uh, very unusual. Yeah. And
1: The last thing real quick that she did where – I remember my favorite law school professor always said, where is the judge tap dancing on your head? You know, like, where are they doing, trying not to make you realize that they're doing something that's inappropriate? And that area, other than what we've talked about, is with the motions to compel. So, you know, Ronaldo can explain, DOJ is providing basically voluntarily what they think is discoverable, but Trump is going to look at that and say, no, there's all sorts of other discoverable information. I want you to go search for government. And give me if it meets the standards of discovery. So they are going to make those requests. DOJ is going to have to entertain them and either go look for the documents because they agree or say, we already looked for them. We're good. Or they'll go to court and and litigate all that. So that was, just let me check.
0: October 20th.
1: Yeah, that was supposed to be October 20th. And now it is January January 16th. Thank you. So that's a delay of 89 days. a long time yeah
0: for just that for them to just say hey we want you to go look for this extra stuff
1: to to file the motions to say that three month delay for again a little bit of delay so they could look at the discovery look at those five documents so that makes sense but a three month delay makes no sense and if this case is going to go off the rails that's going to be where um because basically she if she grants those motions and it's stuff doj hasn't already searched for they have to go to those agencies. Those agencies have mm. to search. That'll take two or three weeks. Then they have, DOJ has to come look at them. That'll take a week or two. And then they have to go start over on the SEPA process. Do we do section four? Do we, uh, we then we have to file motions and declarations and all that stuff. So like when she, if she grants any of those motions, that's going to, that's going to throw everything out of whack by months more. Plus to go back to Nauta uh, and De Oliveira if she says hey they get access to all the charged documents now they're going to say okay we need 3 months delay so we have time to look at them too so it it's it's all a recipe for much more delay coming up
2: yeah that sort of motion is something i've made at times for more limited sets of non classified documents you know i'll make it and we'll get a response and we'll litigate the entire issue within 5 days right you know shortly before trial but i yeah. think You know, just to Asha, to kind of tie this back into something you and I have discussed. We've talked, you used the, I think you used the term that uh, Judge Shutkin was the anti canon. And we've had these conversations Mm. where um, we talked about the enormous discretion judges have over their trial calendars and they're just their calendars, their dockets in general, their calendaring. This is an example of it flipping and going the other way, right? We're like, Judge Chutkin Mm -hmm. has all this power to sort of move things around, uh, perhaps to Trump's detriment. And here, I think we have the flip side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what you were saying is that you were asking in Chutkin's case, like, why not just move up his trial as sort of a punishment? (laughs) Yeah. Because he's, you know, going crazy, because that would be something that, you know, would be almost unreviewable like nobody's gonna challenge her on that and so it's brian it sounds to me is that the same for these types of um scheduling decisions i mean because if that's the case then she can totally just bury i mean she can you know i mean and the public isn't paying attention to this right like it's not it's not a ruling it's not it doesn't have the same kind of um she doesn't have to provide reasoning, really, and it, in this public way that she did, for example, with a special master case and everything. So she can kind of, as you said, tip her hand, you know, uh, put a feather on the – not even a feather, an anvil on the scale for Trump and just keep kicking the can down the road and nobody would really know. Because the kind of conversation we're, happening, we're having right now is not going to happen on the news.
1: Right. And it's not – it's just not the – none of this – even though I think the schedule, as we talked about, doesn't make sense in a lot of ways, none of it is anything DOJ can appeal. None of it, um, pre trial scheduling is left. I don't know what the legal standard is, but I can definitely say it's left to the extremely broad discretion of the trial court. I don't think there's anything DOJ could appeal there. There's certainly nothing here that would be grounds for recusal. Sorry, people who keep hoping that's going to happen. That's not going to happen. And, and there is interlocutory appeal with SEPA, but that's only if she makes a ruling providing. Basically, ordering the government to provide some sort of classified information to the defense in a way that the government didn't didn't propose or wasn't okay with—that hasn't happened yet either. So, there's just she has very wisely, if she's trying to tank this case or at least push it back to election, she's very wisely dragging it out. Um, and not making appealable issues in the
2: process. right. She's doing so. I, I agree, one hundred percent. It's actually it's like super deference that's given to the to the trial court at scheduling stuff. It's there's all these courts of appeals rulings that are just like we, we basically we will not disturb the you know the district court's you know discretion to manage its own docket and calendar and that sort of thing. And, and the irony is, you know, you were talking, Brian, about what the the, the government could do about it. If she gives them a bad ruling on evidence, then it'll be the government delaying by having an interlocutory appeal. That's the -hmm. trick bag she could put them in. She can give them a long deadline. No one really cares about scheduling deadlines for these preliminary matters. Then if she rules against the government, the government will delay, and then she can blame the government for pushing it past the election at that point.
1: Yeah. And the things that, just to tie it off, the things that DOJ is most likely to appeal under SEPA are when we get to the trial preparation phase. Which we haven't even talked about yet, in which and she has now thrown off the schedule for completely. There's three different additional phases of SEPA coming up that that would have to basically now be done through between March 1st and May 20th, and there's just not enough time for that. And that's where she's most likely to do something that DOJ would want to appeal. The second they appeal, trial date is off. So that's just why I think we've all concluded like. There's just no way May 20th is happening.
0: So let's just recap here. Then basically the only way that Trump is actually going to be held accountable for the possession of these classified documents is if he doesn't get elected president. And this trial can actually continue on whatever schedule that that she has this on. And if he is elected president, this is going to get buried. And then he is going to, once again, have access to all of the classified information. And this time, I'm assuming, like, hoard it and bury it in his backyard or whatever. While you know, I mean, I guess he's never going to leave at that point. So it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. You know, so.
1: It's certainly feasible that if Cannon wanted to, you could still have this trial in late June or July. Like, I, even with these delays, I think there's... She actually had more time built into the second half of her schedule. I won't get into it, but she actually allowed a lot more time in in the sort of February to May months so that they could make up some ground later, potentially. So July, but.
0: But then she's going to say, no, this is too close to the election. I mean, she's going to come up with another reason so, for that.
1: So I, I'm still skeptical. I would not bet any money that'll happen before the election, but it, it's possible. But I think you're right that it, it's probably not going to happen.
2: So if if you're listening to this and you wondered, why have we got this guy in here with charts, which are, by the way, available in the description. There's a link in the description (laughs) to the chart. Okay, if you want to see the chart, your beautiful chart yourself. Um, Why we have this guy on with charts and why are we talking about scheduling stuff? It's because this is actually going to almost certainly determine the the outcome of the Mar-a-Lago matter. And you're not going to hear about this in the news.
1: People were the media initially when this ruling came out were like, oh, she didn't move the trial day victory for the government. It's just not like like for the reasons we've all oh, just talked no. about. It's this is a loss for the government for sure. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> want, want.
0: So we can't leave Renato without uh talking about some breaking news yesterday um my network i'm very proud to say broke uh, had some breaking news that uh they were able to obtain the videos of the proffer sessions from several of the Fulton County defendants who have gotten plea deals and i think specifically the ones that were uh released last night were uh Jenna Ellis and Sydney Powell.
2: Wasn't Ken Cheth Cheesebro or whatever as well?
0: I haven't seen that one yet. Um, and so I'm wondering what you think of the revelations, um, what, that, what insight. I mean, I gave my commentary yesterday on TV, so I'm going to um, see, see whether my take was, was the right one.
2: Okay, this is interesting because I don't know your take. I didn't watch, uh, so that's my fault. I was on a plane. So, all right. So let's. So here would be my take on it. What this really helps to highlight is the inadequacy of the process. I wouldn't say inadequacy, but the how how more basic the process is down there in Fulton County versus what you might have in, let's say, a federal case, which are our, our listeners might be used to. They're like, oh yeah, we have these cooperators and flippers, and you know they. They have all of these statements that are prepared and they're in the grand jury or whatever. Here, what we have is they put a video camera in front of Jenna Ellis and just let her have almost like a diary of the mouth where she says a whole bunch of stuff. And as long as some of it was helpful to them, they're like, okay, you got a deal. Um, I, for what it seemed to me was a lot of the stuff that was discussed was self-serving, A, and we could talk about that particularly in the Powell the portions of the Powell uh, video that I watched were very self-serving stuff by Powell. Secondly, um, a lot of lack of follow-up, right? By at least that I saw from these prosecutors, like, oh, okay, so let's get this straight. Donald Trump said, I'm camping out, or not Donald Trump himself, but Dan Scavino told you, we're just going to camp out in the White House and seize power, even if he loses the election, like we don't care. Uh, And you proceeded to go on and like, simp for this guy, and you know, uh, do everything you could to help him stay in power. Anyway, like, wh- what was up with that, Jenna Ellis? Why were you spreading a lies about the election and trying to make this happen? I, I didn't see that sort of hard hitting questioning of her as a witness, and so I just think these statements are full of things that the defense is going to ar- you know use to cross examine them. There's some helpful stuff and certainly some shocking and interesting things, but a lot of it is self-serving and minimizes their own culpability. So I think that uh, Fani Willis got her guilty pleas and she's moving on and focusing on the big fish, but not the process that I would have uh, wanted to have in place for cooperators.
0: Okay. Well, I didn't really critique the process. I was just looking at the substance of what they said and why it'd be helpful to her. And I think that You know, I don't think anything was like smoking gun, but it definitely, I think, is in line with the theory of her case, which is that this was a criminal scheme that was done with the purpose of keeping Trump in power illegally. And I think what's important about the Jenna Ellis conversation that she had with Dan Scavino, as I noted on Twitter, was just that, you know, the data which she's having this, where he's saying you know, we're just going to not leave. And she says, well, that doesn't, that's not how it works. And he says, well, we don't care. Is that this is, this is after the safe harbor deadline for legal challenges. This is after the states have certified their vote. So to me, it evinced, it. I think of it as, you know, a conclusion, a preordained conclusion in search of, you know, quote unquote evidence. In other words, it makes clear that they had decided, what the outcome needed to be. And so it gets into what these, all these subplots, the whole pur- purpose of them was to find and fabricate, manufacture evidence to, you know, give him a reason to stay. Um, I, and the other thing that it seems to me is that to the extent that, you know, that this was coming from Dan Scavino. And I think Sidney Powell also sort of alluded to Trump, you know, having his own view of what needed to happen, it undercuts this idea that he was just relying on his lawyers. I mean, that this was something that was coming top down, not something that the lawyers were creating and that he's just, you know, going along with as a client. Um, that this was coming from the top.
2: I, I agree with that. I agree with every, every word you said. I, I don't think that what we're doing is giving differing views here. I think we're giving complementary right. views. I agree that I I think the the, the what Dan Scavina told uh, Jen Ellis is shocking, and I, I I tweeted about it as well because I was like, well, I mean, this is insane, right? It's like we're going to assert power, just camp out in the White White House, try to do something about it. I mean, that's that's shocking, but you know, I I think that the problem that I have is just it's going to be it's going to be a problem for her on the witness stand. Cause I, I think if I was cross-examining her, I'd be like, okay, you're telling us that Dan Scavina told you this absolutely shocking thing that we're going to assert power. And yet you're still out here defending this guy and working on his behalf. So um, it, how do, how can we believe you that this conversation took place when you were out there lying after this uh, and trying to help this guy accomplish that? And
0: still lying in the session itself. She uh, was saying that, <laughs> Um, She still believed that the election was stolen, though she did concede that she was not an election law expert, which I'm sure shocked everyone. But uh, (laughs) I think, again, gets to, you know, she could not have possibly been like no one would be reasonably relying on her for legal counsel on 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 these kinds of things. I will say what's really interesting and, and someone else on Twitter pointed out that this conversation with Dan Scavino happened on the same day that Trump puts out, I believe, his Be Wild, come, come and it'll be wild tweet for the ellipse. And Sidney Powell mentions that later she decided to get out of Dodge on before January 6th because she didn't want to stick around for what was going to happen. So definitely, I think for... You know That's more relevant to Jack Smith's case, but it does, to me, suggest a kind of broader knowledge that something was very deliberately afoot um, well before January 6th that other people knew about.
2: That's an interesting point I, that I hadn't considered that, but I think that's right, Asha. I, I think there is definitely some nuggets that are helpful there. i'm you know i'm looking at this it's like a doctor watches er or something okay so as like i'm sitting here watching these videos i'm like follow up ask this what are you doing and i'm like no you know these are golden opportunities because let's face it this is the the only time in their lives where these people are going to say anything other than maybe when they're on the witness stand in that same fulton county case where they're going to say any of this stuff um But look, it's it's shocking. Um, It was almost certainly released, by the way, by the defense. One of the defendants, the Trump team defendants uh, in those cases, you know, released this stuff. I will say, did you also have the reaction, Asha, that the Sidney Powell one was the least helpful? Like, she seems the most like out there, right?
0: Yeah, I was not entirely like I thought that the conversation that Jenna Ellis relayed was Pretty damning, at assuming that, you know, it can get in somehow. But um, yeah, the Sydney Powell stuff seemed a little bit all over the place. And especially the fact that she was still maintaining that the election was rigged. It does not seem to me to be a, a good point.
2: Yeah, she seemed to me like she basically was unwilling to admit anything. I actually think what happened there was Fonnie Willis' team is like, okay, we charged her. She's willing to plead to something. So, as long as she moves her lips and comes in and says something, we're just going to give her a plea, let her plead guilty and be done with it. It's better to call her a cooperator and kind of have her sort of on our side, like have her in our tent pissing out rather than outside our tent pissing in right. and just let it be. That's what yeah. I think.
0: And then they can move on to the bigger fish. Yeah,
2: that's what I think. I just think they're like, whatever, we'll take whatever we're going to get, even if it's not much.
0: So before we go, I know that people commented last week on my new background and the fact that <laughs> my shelves were empty. And it's because I just redid my office. And I still have all the things boxed up and I need to get stuff back on the shelf. I've thrown some stuff on for right now, but um, this will hopefully be reorganized by the next time. But you, as you know, Renato... Um, renovating and doing home improvements takes a lot of time and energy and it, it takes a while to get back. Yes.
2: To I will say, by the way, I'm very jealous because I'm trying to redo my office. I love, is this like floor to ceiling books practically? Like like a ton of bookshelves and books? Yes. I love yes. that. That's what I want too. So I'm trying to explain to my wife that that's the aesthetic I want. She was, it was hard to convince her of that. But I am not, I am not into home improvements the same way you are. In fact, this is like a bone of contention in my household. Is my wife is like always dreaming up, let's do this, let's do that, let's have this new life fixture, let's redo this. And I'm just like, why? Like this costs all this money. Our home's fine. It's beautiful. Like, let's just keep it the way it is. What is it for you that makes you love home improvement?
0: Well. My ceiling was falling in.
2: Okay. Okay, that's different. That's different.
0: (laughs) So, you know, I just, I am, I wouldn't say that I'm super into home improvement, but when I decide to do something, I'll just go all the way. Like, in other words, I had to clear out everything from my study to get the ceiling fixed. So while I was at it, I was like, you know, because that color, remember the red room, everybody comments on that was like the color that it was when I bought it like 16 years ago. And it got to a point where there was, you know, my desk was in here, the bookshelves and, and I was just like who has the time to to redo this thing? But once it got empty, I was like, let's do it. Like let me think of a whole new scheme and just get it all done at once. And for me that's the been the main motivator. My my house was built in 1927. Oh wow. And so yeah, it's a it's a pretty old house, almost 100 years old. And so, you know, I've needed to update it. And that's why. And I find it incredibly stressful. So I'm not always just updating for the heck of it.
2: Oh, that's yeah. Okay. So you're not like, so my, my wife, we, our home is fairly new. We weren't the first owners, but it's a newer home. And for her, it's just fun. Like, like, so for example, I'm a gamer, I'll play games on my iPad or iPhone. My wife plays a design game where she designs rooms. Like that's fun to her. And so, like, getting a 10 out of 10 on Room Raider is, like, a big deal for my wife. Like, she loves making the the yeah, every room perfect. So, if I, I could tell her any budget, and she would use any budget for home improvements and soup up every room if she could. Like, that's just, like, a hobby for her.
0: Tell her I'm looking for a purple leopard print blanket or throw. Oh. Something really cozy for my chair in my study. And I... I haven't found the perfect one. So she's ever inclined to do a Google search.
2: I will. And and I actually, I'm going to ask our listeners here, maybe you can help me in the comments. What do you think an appropriate home improvement budget is? This is a discussion my wife and I've had where we have very differing views about what a appropriate yearly home improvement budget, because this was like a, a thought process we had. I'm like, look, Let's just decide on the amount and then we don't have to have discussions on a monthly basis of what we're going to spend on home improvements. Let's just figure out how much.
0: Well, what do you mean by home improvements? Do you mean just like updating decor and things? Because also your budget is going to depend on what you're doing. I mean, if you're updating your kitchen or bathroom, then you just I think you just bite the bullet and have to deal with it.
2: Yeah, I'm not. but, But I'm talking about like elective things to make your home look nicer. Like, I'm not talking about repairs. Like I get it. If like the fan falls off the ceiling, you've got to like fix that. I'm talking about like, you've just decided, you know, for no apparent reason, like let's have a souped up bathroom. Like there's, there's no reason why you need to soup up your bathroom. It still exists and it's fine, but you just make a decision. Like you're going to soup up your study or your bathroom or your living room or whatever.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't soup up for, for no reason. Obviously you guys saw my so, red room for, for 16 years, you know? So She wants
2: to make her home beautiful, which I think is great. I think that's, it's nice to have a beautiful home. So the, the question is how much I'll be interested. I'll be in your comments. I'd be very interested in everyone's thoughts on that.
0: And I'll be interested in any recommendations for a purple leopard print blanket slash throat. M. S. W. Media.